First reading is from Genesis 25, which is on page 26, starting at verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padanaram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. The second reading is from Malachi, chapter 1, not Micah as it says on on the service sheets. That is on page 960. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. I pray as we remain standing. Father God, you are indeed great and most worthy of our praise. And so as we look at your word this evening, we pray that we would see your greatness. That as we uh, look at some difficult things, we pray that we would leave here praising you, rejoicing in your love, your goodness, and your faithfulness to us. 
Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. Do turn to page 960. And keep open Malachi chapter 1. Let me ask you a question as we begin. I hope this isn't a too personal question. It's this. What's your love language? What's your love language? Uh, Gary Chapman is a a best-selling author, and he's written a book on love languages. And he says there's five ways that we express and receive love. Giving of gifts, quality time, words of affirmation, acts of service, or physical touch. I wonder which of those, two of those five, three of those five, do you most value? You see, we'll feel love and receive love differently. We're different individuals. And these different love languages are the way that we feel that love. I remember talking to Jane about these things, Jane, my wife, when I first discovered these. And I I asked Jane tentatively which was hers. And she highlighted one or two and then sort of paused and said, to be honest, I think I like all of them. (laughs) And my heart sank. (laughs) I don't know whether you buy into this love language thing or not. But what is true is that we do all want to be loved. Now, whether that's in a friendship or in marriage, we want to feel secure in that love. Uh, And of course, the wonderful strength of marriage is that marriage is, is a covenant of love. An agreement where two parties promise to love each other through all of life's up and downs, till death us do part. Marriage gives wonderful security to love because it's a covenant, it's an agreement. Of course, the problem in the world is that people are unfaithful to the promises that they make. People don't keep their words. And so we can find ourselves in any relationship, marriage, friendship, we can find ourselves thinking... Do they really love me? Are you really for me? And that's the question that God's people are asking of God in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi, as we've seen on that video, don't worry if you didn't understand it all, that's why we're going to go through it over the next few weeks. Uh, In this, God makes a series of statements and then Israel, God's people, respond with questions. You see the verse 1 in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But the people ask, how have you loved us? Now Israel were God's chosen people. The people that God made a covenant with. They are described as God's brides. And God is their perfectly faithful, perfectly loving husband who will never stop loving them. But Israel's circumstances are causing them to question and doubt that love. Their status as the the loved and chosen nation by God. How have you loved us, they say? Where's the evidence? Show us. And before we get too critical, we've seen a little bit of their history on that video. In their recent history, they or their previous generation would have seen the destruction of Jerusalem. Their family homes would have been destroyed by the Babylonians. Their parents would have been taken off to Babylon. 
Everything destroyed. Uh, and now they come back. They come back to Jerusalem. They come back to the homes. But they try to rebuild. But everything is a shadow. A shadow of what it once was. God's chosen and dearly loved people. Really? Didn't feel like they were. And I think we can feel similar. As we live in God's world, we see the persecution of Christians. We experience suffering. And time after time, our expectations of life are not met and we're left feeling disappointed. And these things cause us to question and doubt God's love for us. Surely if God loved us, he wouldn't allow that to happen to God's people. Surely if God really loved me, he would not allow me to go through what I'm going through right now. Surely if God loved me, my life would be better than this. Not perfect, but at least better than this. And so in the midst of those questions, Malachi encourages us not to doubt God's love, his goodness, or his faithfulness. And he does that by giving us three things in, in the whole book. He's got a handout on the back of your sheet, so do follow along with that. The first thing he gives us is this, a warning of judgment. In verse 1, uh, we read that this is an oracle. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that, that word is translated burden. What Malachi is going to share with us, weigh, or share with the people, weighs heavily upon him. And it should do on us too. Because this oracle is one of judgment. It's one of judgment on God's people who failed to trust him. But secondly, he also gives an encouragement, plenty of encouragements to keep trusting God. It's full of encouragement and hope to the people of God who are going to stay faithful to him and continue to fear the Lord. And the third thing Malachi gives us is a challenge to remember right at the end of the book. If God's people are going to not doubt God's love and stay faithful to him during tough times, then they'll need to remember his word. Because it's only in his word that we are reminded of his covenant promises that he's made to his people. So those are the three big things all the way through the book of Malachi. Let's see how those things then work out in these first five verses. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? And Malachi gives this response, or God gives this response through Malachi. It's very short. He says, I've loved Jacob. Esau, I've hated. Good. (laughs) Right, that's clarified things, isn't it? (laughs) Fear not. It's short, it's simple. But these verses, what God is going to do through Malachi is show us what this verse means. And to see how God's love for Jacob, not Esau, in the past, in the present, and in the future displays God's covenant love for his people. So firstly then, God's covenant love in the past. We've introduced two people here, Esau and Jacob. And what's important here is what those two names represent. And that's why we went back to Genesis chapter 25, where, where it's the birth narrative of Esau and Jacob. Now remember, Esau and Jacob are the sons of Isaac, and Isaac is the son of Abraham. And so what we're reading in these verses in Genesis is the history of God's people, of God's chosen family. 
And in verse 23, God says to Isaac's wife, Rebekah, she says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God chooses, right back in the birth narrative, Jacob, not not Esau. It's Jacob who is to receive God's covenant love, not Esau. And so, as the narrative goes on, we see that Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And Israel has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. God's people. Esau grows uh, a family, and they they become the Edomites, a nation who, throughout the Old Testament, you can read, are hostile to God, enemies of God, and hostile to God's people. And so God says to his people, look, if you want proof that I love you, well, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have hated. Jacob receives God's covenant love, care, and protection. Israel do, not the Edomites. And what God's trying to do here is use a comparison to help Israel get perspective. Um, Many of you know that Jane and I, when we moved to Basingstoke, had a massive house renovation. And one of the things that went wrong fairly soon was our kitchen tap. And it wobbled. And it got increasingly wobbly as time has gone on. And, um, do you know, it's a little thing, but you would not believe how annoying it is to have a wobbly kitchen tap. And finally this week it was fixed. But I remember feeling just a bit stroppy about not being able to get hold of the builder to come and fix it and him chuntering. And then walking to church and walking past the homeless person. And I just thought, yeah, there's perspective, isn't there? Me and my annoying kitchen tap and this poor guy who I see most days, or I did at that point, on the streets. See, it's a comparison that reminds me of my privilege and puts things into perspective. And that's what God is trying to do for his people here. Despite how things might appear for Israel, God wants Israel to see their privilege so that they might have perspective. I have loved Jacob, God says. Esau I have hated now, I don't know um, if you, like me, as I've been preparing this, this week, feel slightly uncomfortable with that language. The God hated Esau and Edomites. Something great for me was I read that. And so I really think it's helpful to understand what Malachi means here. I think this is less about who God loves and who God hates, but more about who God chooses and who he doesn't choose. Who he chooses to be his covenant people and who he doesn't. So his his love or or hate of Esau and Edomites is is a consequence of his decision. As one commentator said, and I think this is really helpful, love and hate here are not emotions that God feels. So he's not waking up in a bad mood and going, right, I'm hating you and loving you. They're not emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. So God chooses one nation to be his people. And by inference, by consequence, he rejects others. That's what I think this means. Now look, I know that 
maybe that doesn't quite answer all the questions. In fact, this passage raises lots of questions, and um, thankfully for me, we don't have time to look at those this evening, but I'm sure Clive would love to talk to you on the door <laughs> about the intricacies of this. But let me say three important things that I think come out of this passage. And the first thing is this. In these verses particularly, God here is talking about nations, not individuals. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, I think these, this, um, these truths are applied personally, but here, the discussion is about which nation is chosen by God to receive his covenant love. Now, secondly, that is important because God's choosing of the nations here, or rejecting of Esau and Edom, doesn't guarantee salvation for any individuals within those nations. Just because someone is a part of Israel doesn't guarantee they will be saved. Similarly, just because someone grows up in the family of Edom doesn't mean they can't be saved. It was possible in the Old Testament for anyone from any nation to be saved by faith. That's really important. This is about nations, not individuals. And thirdly, the Old Testament bears witness to the fact that God made the right choice. Because as you go through the book, you see what Edom are like, and they are not a nice bunch of people. They are enemies of God and hostile to his people. So, in summary, Israel can be confident, secure in God's love, because God made his covenant with them, with Jacob, not with Esau. Secondly, that's God's covenant love in the past. God's covenant love in the presence. What we see in these verses is what happened years ago with Jacob and Esau worked out in the present time for Malachi and his, um, his generation. And we see it in verse 3, where God says he will, has destroyed the Edomites. I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to desert jackals. Now again, some of us might feel slightly uncomfortable with that language. The language of God destroying Edom. But I want to suggest that's probably because we haven't lived in their shoes. We haven't experienced what they've experienced. Uh, it's never nice um, reading the paper or listening to the news about uh, real evil, is it? Um, atrocities that are committed in countries or individuals who carry out the most, do the most horrible things to other human beings. But I think one of the things that we find most sickening is when we listen to those stories, there's accounts of murders or rapes, and the person who does them is convicted and shows no remorse whatsoever. And what perhaps make it, makes us even more sick is when, more than that, they gloat. They revel in what they've done. They're proud of it. And it makes our blood boil. Well, with that feeling in mind, we get a sense of what Israel might be feeling here. We um, can read about how Edom treated Israel in the book of Obadiah. We're not going to look at it now, but it's a few pages back. Good luck finding it. Um, and you can read about how Edom treated Israel. But it's not good. 
Let me give you a summary. Israel have their homes, their livelihood destroyed by the Babylonians. They've seen family members killed. They've seen friends taken as slaves. They've seen everything they've worked for in their life destroyed. They've been carted off to a foreign land. We'd probably call that people trafficking today. And whilst all that was happening, the Edomites, their closest neighbours, did nothing to help. In fact, worse than that, they stood on the sides and watched and rejoiced in Israel's misfortune. They gloated. They rubbed it in their faces. They pillaged what was left behind. And worse than that, those members of God's people who did manage to escape, the Edomites would grab and take to Babylon. So if you'd experienced that, if you'd seen your family wiped apart and seen the gloating of the people of Edom, when you read verse 3, you probably wouldn't struggle to hear it, would you? you'd probably be praising God for his justice and his goodness at putting right evil. So Israel can be certain of God's love because he has chosen them in the past. He has dealt with their enemies in the present. And thirdly, he will judge evil and establish his rule in the future. You will see it with your own eyes, verse 5, and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. You see, God will one day fully judge the Edomites and Israel will see God's greatness. I don't know if you watch um, criminal dramas on TV. Uh, we, we love watching them. And um, what I love is at the end of the series when the bad guy finally gets found guilty in court and gets carted off to jail. But there's that horrible moment, isn't, isn't there, where as they're in handcuffs, they look back and they shout... I know where you live, I'm coming for you, you've not won this, I'll be back out. And because you know season two is coming, (laughs) you feel nervous and you wonder, could that be? Oh, I think that's how Israel are feeling here, verse four. Though Edom, you can hear them saying, though we have been crushed, we, we, we will rebuild the ruins. We might look defeated, but we're coming back, and when we're back, we are coming for you. Don't think this is over. And that makes Israel nervous. And so God God assures Israel that they will not come back. He says, they may build, but I will demolish, for they remain under my wrath. Israel can be certain of God's love because he has chosen them in the past, He has dealt with their enemies in the present and one day he will establish his rule and justice will be done for good and everyone will see his greatness. Well, that's all wonderful for Israel, isn't it, a few hundred years ago? But what about us? How do these verses assure us of God's love? In a world of persecution, in a world of suffering, of disappointment from unmet expectations. Well, the fourth way we see God's covenantal love displayed is in Christ. And sorry, that didn't quite make the handout, so feel free to add 4.4, in Christ. You see, Israel always had an important role to play. 
but they're always meant to be a pointer, a shadow. And we see part of this uh, passage in Malachi quoted by Paul in Romans 9, in a section in Romans 9 to 11, chapters 9 to 11, where he is teaching about the role of Israel in the formation of God's people. And Paul says that Israel were incredibly privileged, chosen by God to be his covenant people. But, Paul says, whether or not any of us truly belong to God's people has and always will be a matter of grace, not race. You see, Israel were a pointer to Christ, the true Israel. And therefore, in Christ, through faith, you are part of God's covenant people. Christ is the faithful husband, and if you trust him this evening, you are part of his bride. Those in Christ, Christians, have been promised to a husband. A perfect husband whose love is unfailing. A husband who is always faithful. And a husband who puts up with you despite all your failings. And so, if you have faith in Christ, you can rest secure in God's covenant love for you. And you can rest secure in the past, in the present, and in the future. In the past, God chose you. I don't know why, but he did. He chose to love you. He chose to open your eyes. He chose to give you grace. Not because you did anything to deserve it, but just because he loves you. And if he has chosen you in the past, why would he stop loving you now? And on the cross, we see Jesus defeating sin and evil. Sin and evil no longer reign in this world. It may feel like they prosper now. And the battles continue, but the war has been won. We can rest secure in God's love. You've been chosen in the past. And secondly, in the present, we do live in a world. We do live in a world where sin and evil cause suffering, where we experience persecution, where we experience disappointment from unmet expectations, where life hasn't worked out how we planned. And the church feels small and feeble and weak. But Christ rules. Christ reigns over his world and and he is protecting his church. How else do you think the church has survived to this point? And through the hard times, God sustains his people. So that even in the most difficult times, God's people, God's chosen people can know his goodness, his love and his faithfulness to us. So we can rest secure in God's love. And in the future, one day, Christ will be united to his bride. And evil and sin will be utterly destroyed forever. God's people will no longer have enemies like Eden. We will live in a perfect world with a perfect God, knowing God's love perfectly. So as I finish tonight, let's just go back to those three things that Malachi is trying to do. 
He's warning us. And so he encourages us to hear the warning of his judgment. God's people can wonderfully rest secure in his love, but God's people qualify by grace, not race. By grace, not works. And so let me, as gracious as I can say to you this evening, if you haven't trusted Christ, if you don't have faith in him, then you do have no assurance of God's love for you. But you can do something about that. We need to hear the warning of judgment. We need to hear the challenge to remember. You know, in a world of persecution, suffering and unmet expectations, you will only feel secure in God's love You will not doubt God's love nearly so much if you remind yourself of his covenant promises. You know, that's why it's good in marriage, isn't it, every so often for a husband or a wife to say, I love you. It's good to be reminded. And thirdly, this evening we need to hear the encouragement to trust. Malachi reminds us in Christ we are dearly and perfectly loved. So don't give up on God. Don't doubt his goodness and faithfulness. God will keep his promises. Sin and evil will be destroyed for eternity. And in Christ, that is your future. And we have it in part now. Let's pray. Just a moment to pause, to reflect on what we've heard in God's words, and then I'll pray. Gracious Father, we confess to you this evening that sometimes... For all sorts of reasons, we have doubted your goodness and your love and your faithfulness. And so we thank you for the reminder this evening that we are loved in Christ more than we could ever know. Thank you for the reminder this evening there is a king who reigns over all. King of unfailing justice, a king of unfading grace, whose promises remain. Thank you for the wonderful confidence that gives us, Father, as we live in a world that is hostile to you. Be with us, we pray. May we know your love in Christ this week. Amen.